Hello and welcome to Deep Dive. I'm Oscar Boyd. This week, the Japan Times' Ryusei Takahashi on decommissioning the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant, and Magda Asumi on recovery efforts in the Tohoku region. Today marks the 8th anniversary of the Great East Japan earthquake. On March 11, 2011, a magnitude 9 earthquake struck off the coast of the Tohoku region of northern Japan, causing a massive tsunami that inundated the area's coastline and resulted in the deaths of almost 16,000 people, over $350 billion worth of damage, and the meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Almost a decade later, the region is still in recovery. And, though the ground has stopped shaking and tsunami waters have long since receded, the crippled nuclear power plant has yet to be decommissioned, and remains for the foreseeable future a thorn in the side of those very recovery efforts. It was surreal to walk around somewhere like the Fukushima number one nuclear power plant. I'd definitely never been to a place like that before. And... Joining me today is Ryusei Takahashi, a staff reporter who recently travelled to the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. As we got on and off the buses wearing protective vests and goggles and the face masks, all of it, it just pushed into my head how big of a disaster occurred at that exact site where I was walking on. The earthquake and tsunami in 2011 obviously caused most of the damage, but what happened at the nuclear power plant sent fear throughout the country and across the entire world. And what does it look like at the moment? Does it, does it look like a disaster site when you're walking around or does it actually feel surprisingly normal? It depends on where you are and where you're looking. In the bus on the way to the site, I saw several buildings that were basically shells. Uh, at some point I even saw a wall that was just standing on its own with no building attached to it, and a lot of vegetation is growing through cracks in the ground. Uh, but those were those kinds of buildings were scattered, and in between there were buildings that have been rebuilt um, and are being used to this day. And once you get to the site, uh, you see a surprising amount of vegetation. Uh, there was a lot more green than I expected. And this is like a normal green as opposed to the radioactive green right, that you might right. expect. The, the, the red forest phenomenon at Chernobyl... Uh, definitely didn't take place in Fukushima. What left the biggest impression on me was when the tour bus stopped and let us out right between reactor units two and three. Uh, we were barely wearing any protective gear. Uh, vests, two pairs of socks, boots that they gave us, uh, these clunky blue things. Why two pairs of socks? Apparently that extra sock really makes a difference. <laughs> a face mask, uh, sort of like the, the one people wear on trains in Japan, I'm sure. This one was a little different, but uh, sort of the same idea. Um, goggles and a protective helmet and gloves. And I got within literally a meter or two of the walls of reactor units two and three. One of the things I remember the most from the trip was the site of reactor unit number three. What about it in particular caught your attention? Reactor unit three is covered in scratches. When the tsunami hit the power plant, it was about 13 meters tall and Across the compound on the sides of buildings, there are signs that say 13 meters, Great East Japan earthquake. Mm. In March 2011, the water was carrying cars, trees, homes that had been destroyed, and all these things were rubbed up against the sides of the reactor unit. Do 
just to explain the significance of being so close, could you remind us, uh, you say, what exactly happened on March 11, 2011? So, eight years ago, a magnitude 9 earthquake struck off the Tohoku region of Japan. This triggered a tsunami that in some cases flowed 10 kilometers inland, and at the Fukushima number 1 nuclear power site, the water knocked out the backup generators powering water pumps that had been cycling water in and out of the reactor cores and regulating their core temperatures. And what did this lead to? Temperature buildup in the reactor cores led to pressure buildup. This caused hydrogen explosions in reactor units 1, 3, and 4 after reactor units 1, 2, and 3 suffered core meltdowns. Radiation leaked into the atmosphere uh, from reactor units 1, 2, and 3. And in addition to that, the meltdowns caused fuel inside of reactor units 1, 2, and 3 to burn through the, the pressure vessel and fall down onto the floor of the primary containment vessel. The concrete foundations of the reactors had been compromised uh, or damaged, and so they had cracks following the earthquake. Coolant water from the pressure vessel uh, fell into the basement, and in some cases, groundwater that leaked into the basement mixed with this tainted water and then came back out into the ground. And this spread of radioactive material was actually so significant that it was declared a level 7 on the International Nuclear and Radiological Event Scale, right? Yes. Uh, the only other time any nuclear accident has ever been rated so high was Chernobyl, the Chernobyl accident in 1986. So now you've got this situation where eight years on, it's still not been decommissioned. What are the people who are in charge of the plant and what are the government actually doing about it? To counteract what's happening with the groundwater leaching into the basements and uh, dragging radionuclides down the coast and into the ocean water, TEPCO, or the Tokyo Electric Power Company, which is the power plant's operator, has taken two different countermeasures uh, to, to limit the impact this might have on wildlife. Could you tell me a bit about those countermeasures? One thing they've done is create a groundwater bypass system uh, in which wells are used to raise and lower the groundwater levels in certain areas so that it can be diverted around uh, the, the power plant. And what's the second measure? The second measure is an underground ice wall that blocks the groundwater from entering the basements. And how effective are those measures? Are they effective? Both the water bypass system and the underground ice wall are temporary measures. Groundwater can't be blocked or diverted forever, and the water being used to keep the reactor cores cool now uh, is building up and being stored in tanks that are placed across the, the compound in basically whatever space seems to be available. So at the moment, they're using more water to keep the reactors cool, and then this has to be treated and stored as well. Yes. Every day, hundreds of tons of water is being cycled through the reactor cores and their pressure vessels uh, to keep their core temperatures stable. This water picks up radionuclides as it passes through the space, and uh, it becomes radioactive. That water is then moved out of the pressure vessel and uh, through a, a filter called the Advanced Liquid Processing System, or ALPS, uh, which Tep TEPCO claimed uh, was filtering everything out except for a radionuclide called tritium. Last year, it was reported that this wasn't necessarily true. 
But in any case, the water, after it's removed from the pressure vessel and moved into these, these storage tanks, it's just kind of sitting there. How much capacity is there to actually store that water? Is that a permanent solution? No, it's definitely not a permanent solution. At the moment, 1.1 million tons of this water is being stored on the site. TEPCO has allocated space uh, up until 2021 to build 1.37 million. And beyond 2021, what, what will happen? That's a very good question. Uh, I asked it many times while I was touring the site in February, and I basically got the same answer. Uh, they don't know yet. As long as the melted fuel debris remains in the bottom of the, the containment vessels of those three nuclear cores, water is always going to be needed to keep them cool. And as long as water is needed, tanks are just going to keep growing. And when you're walking around the plant, then, do you see these tanks? Can you give me a sense of the scale you're talking about when you say there's a million tons of water being stored on site? The tanks are pretty big. The ones they're using now stand about 10 meters tall and hold anywhere between 1,000 and 1,200 tons of water. But just looking around, you can see tanks sitting on their sides, rusty old ones over there, big shiny metal ones over here, clustered together, and it just really seems like they're being stuffed into whatever open space they can occupy on the site until basically they figure out where to put these things. And do they have any plans at the moment to move the existing tanks or store water elsewhere? Pending approval from the government, TEPCO is considering five ways to get rid of the water. And these options aren't about finding more space for tanks or finding a better way to store the water, but how to get rid of it. Most experts agree that the best option is to discharge the water into the ocean incrementally, but this poses sort of a nuanced risk to the local industry in, in many ways. The water itself contains trace amounts of tritium that are well below international standards. And on top of that, if it were to be discharged into the ocean, it would be diluted to a concentration 10 times less than it is now. In that way, the water poses very little risk towards marine wildlife off the coast of the power plant. How possible is it to do this? Well, that's kind of the complicated part because fishermen in Fukushima prefecture have really struggled to recover from the disaster uh, because a lot of people don't want to buy food from the area. And so perception plays a big part in this whole conversation. It's worth mentioning that discharging tritium water is a pretty common practice in nuclear sites around the world. Uh, it's been done before with very little impact, if any, on local marine life and, and whatnot. But in this case, what's important is the perception that it would have an impact on local wildlife and the way that might affect local industry and fisheries, uh, which are a really important part of the local economy. Apart from this option to discharge it into the sea, what other options are TEPCO considering? Well, pending approval from the Japanese government, TEPCO is currently considering five ways to dispose of this treated water. Apart from discharging the water into the ocean, TEPCO is also considering ground injection, uh, discharge as steam, discharge as hydrogen, and solidification followed by underground burial. And are all of these options equally feasible? It's hard to say how feasible each option is individually, but ocean discharge of tritium water is actually a fairly common practice used at nuclear reactors around the world. The water storage problem is obviously one issue, but at the same time as that, they're also trying to decommission the nuclear plant. 
How's the progress with that going? They call it the roadmap, which is the name they're giving this plan uh, to decommission the plant over the next 30 to 40 years. The biggest challenge is the removal of melted fuel debris from the bottoms of the reactor's cores of Unit 1, 2, and 3. And how do you go about doing that? Well, that's the thing. Nobody's ever done this before. TEPCO plans to continue probing the inside of reactor units 1, 2, and 3 until the year 2021, after which point the energy company plans on inventing the technology necessary to remove the melted fuel debris inside said units. So they've made this roadmap, which is 30 to 40 years in timescale, but they really do not know how they're going to get to the end of that 30 to 40 years. What progress have they made along that roadmap so far? Well, earlier this year, TEPCO was finally able to make contact with melted fuel debris inside the primary containment vessel of reactor unit 2 at Fukushima number 1. And how did they go about doing that? They built a robot, kind of shaped like a hand with a finger, and basically poked it. Uh, It was the first time that they had come in contact with the debris accumulating at the bottom of these reactors. And the, the main objective of that whole exercise uh, was to sort of gauge the material qualities of the debris, you know, to see if it's kind of like sand and crumbles easily or if it's more like clay and stays intact when you come in contact with it. And what did they find when they came in contact with it? That it depends where you poke uh, and that there are places with sediment that crumbles and sediment that doesn't. What kind of technology do they actually need to invent then to successfully decommission this plant? It's really just an endlessly complex situation. Water is being used to keep the reactor cores cool. That water is being stored in storage tanks that are running out of space. And the melted fuel debris inside the reactors is sitting in a dark place that we can't see inside. And on top of that, we don't know how to get inside. And we don't have the robots to get inside. We don't have the robots to take the robots out. And then once the robots get out, they're contaminated. So we need a an intermediate space in between the outside world and inside these reactors. And obviously no human can do this because it's far too radioactive. Exactly. And since we can't go inside, we can't just poke our head inside and shine a flashlight around a corner. We can put in one camera at a time that can only see one thing from one angle, depending on the, the probe we're using. The inside of the primary containment vessel of reactor unit 3, for example, uh, has a lot of water in it. And so in that case, we need a, an aquatic probe that can swim around in water and show us what's inside. It sounds like an impossible task at the moment. I'm sure they're making progress towards it, but how likely do you think it is that they will finish this roadmap plan within the 30 to 40 year timescale? I don't think I can say uh, with any level of expertise how likely it is that they're going to be able to decommission the plant in the next three to four decades. So the immediate problem in TEPCO's way is the storage of tritium water. After that, Uh, They can focus on the removal of spent fuel debris. But the real long-term issue is where do they put the fuel debris after they've removed it? Uh, How do they get it there? How do they keep it there? All of that is new territory, uh, relatively speaking, for basically any nuclear power plant in the world. And this is quite different to Chernobyl, where the strategy was to build a structure over the top of it to keep it all contained. 
The Fukushima number one nuclear power plant disaster is often compared to what happened at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania in 1979 and the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. But in reality, those are very different situations. The nuclear reactors that experienced meltdowns at Three Mile Island and Chernobyl weren't contained inside protective structures like the reactors were at Fukushima. And so in Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, nuclear radiation was leaked directly into the atmosphere. At Three Mile Island, the debris left behind was then removed and transported to a containment facility. And these giant dome-like structures were basically just plopped on top of the, the site afterwards. So in some regards, the Chernobyl incident and the Three Mile incident were both easier cleanups, would you say? I don't know if I would describe it as easier at Fukushima, it's very complicated because the act of removing something from a place you can't go inside, especially in the context of a nuclear power plant and a crippled reactor unit, is just new territory for any country in history. With then the short-term issue of uh, water storage and the longer-term issues of the feasibility of decommissioning the plants, what does this actually all mean for the people of the Tohoku region? The way I see it, the decommissioning of the power plant interfaces with the recovery of the region. TEPCO has uh, really tried to emphasize the importance of transparency as they move towards decommissioning the power plants, but I think a lot of people are having trouble trusting them, not just with you know things that happened leading up to the, the disaster in 2011, but even more recently. Uh, last year it was reported that the water contained radionuclides other than tritium. It's a complicated process, obviously, but they have time to do it. They have time to, to plan ahead, build the technology they need, find the resources they need from the experts that are willing to help them from around the world. I think the worst thing TEPCO could do right now is rush and risk another accident from happening. Well, thank you very much, Rise, for joining us in the studio today. Thanks for having me. Ryusei Takahashi's article on decommissioning the Daiichi nuclear power plant can be found online at japantimes.co.jp. Joining me next is Magda Osumi, who's been travelling around Tohoku to see how the region's recovery is taking place. Thanks for joining me today, Magda. Hi, Oscar. Thanks for having me here. Eight years on, how are those who are affected by the earthquake and the tsunami recovering? First of all, to answer your question, I will have to uh, get back to a very basic question. How we should define recovery? Because uh, in March 2011, there were three disasters that hit Japan and they affected the Hoku's coastal areas differently. And these were the earthquake, the tsunami and the nuclear disaster? Yes. So the recovery process in each of those areas is in a different phase at at this point, I visited this time uh, only the Miyagi Prefecture, and when I went to Sendai, which was my the first point I, I got to, there were more tourists. Uh, the life is going on there, and uh, but when you move to to the coastal area, you see the difference because uh, those areas had already been struggling before the the disaster. For your research, you went to the city of Ishinomaki, which is a coastal city up in Miyagi Prefecture. Uh, what are the specific issues some of the residents there are facing? I went to Ishinomaki because I read some reports about uh, a growing number of lone deaths 
there and um, I knew that uh, well these communities are struggling to to rebuild in new areas in Miyagi prefecture when I went there in late February there were about 807 people still living in um, prefabricated recovery units for the victims so these are people who even eight years on after the yes. disaster they've not been able to return to their own homes or even sort of proper designated recovery homes yes that's um, that's one of the major issues that this city and uh, many coastal coastal areas are facing and tell me a bit about these people are they typically young are they old um, what kind of demographics are we looking at this area was already struggling with growing population mm-hmm. and um, shrinking population. So people who have evacuated, and most of them were young people, people with families, they moved to bigger cities mm-hmm. and they had a chance to uh, start their, their new life there. Most of people who who are left uh, in those areas are over 65 and many of them live alone. Would you say then that one of the main problems facing these areas is a complete lack of community? Um, you've got people from all sorts of walks of lives who've been forced together but don't know necessarily how to cope with their new situation? There are people from different places who have different experience. And they they have a baggage. Mm-hmm. They don't want to share their problems with people they don't know. And um, so s- rebuilding those new communities is uh, is a problem for them because they can't they don't know how to communicate. And uh, one thing that mm, a man who was um, who is patrolling that uh, one of those mm, recovery complexes told me that uh, Mr. Takahashi. Uh, told me that um, men, especially elderly men, who move into a new place, they won't just go to their neighbors and for a cup of coffee and talk about their problems. It's something they keep for themselves. So many, many victims just struggle on their own. In many coastal towns, uh, when the tsunami hit the area, Housewives were at home at that time and many of those women uh, who were staying at home lost their lives. And that's why so many men were left alone. What then is being done to try and help these people? When in 2012 the the government set up the reconstruction agency uh, to oversee all those recovery projects and uh, efforts some budget was allocated to help those people deal with the uh, disaster. But um, let's be honest, the the main focus of the reconstruction project so far has been on the reconstruction of the infrastructure, of the facilities there. And um, mental health issues have not yet been addressed because it takes time to recover from such a traumatic uh, experience and some problems have not yet emerged. You mentioned this man, Mr. Takahashi, who patrols the complex to make sure people are okay, I'm guessing. Could you tell me a bit more about him um, and what he's aiming to do? 
So I met uh, Mr. Teruo Takahashi when he was visiting the house of Mr. Koetsu Kondo, a 76-year-old uh, man who used to work on uh, fishery vessels and who just moved to a public uh, recovery uh, housing uh, unit. And uh, Mr. Teruo Takahashi just came to to see how Mr. Kondo is doing. They were talking about... Uh, problems of uh, people who live nearby and they told me about people who whom they knew and who were just found dead after a couple of days. I mean that conversation to me sounds a bit upsetting, a bit depressing but actually was the uh, that interaction, did that make you feel more optimistic about the situation? That's scene made me feel that there is still um, that those people there are s still stuck in a way that they are struggling and that uh, their problems are not really addressed they were uh, talking about gathering to um, to decide what to do with their communities and how to deal with problems, um, how to communicate with the local government. So for, for them, the time stopped. Looking perhaps at something a bit more hopeful then, this year we've got the Rugby World Cup coming up, then the next year we've got the Olympics, both of which have venues in the Tohoku region. Do you think it's going to bring hope to the region and do you think it's going to help with the recovery efforts? During my stay in Tohoku this time, I visited uh, a small town of Rifu. It's close to Sendai, but um, when you miss your train, you need to wait another 70 minutes for another <laughs> one. There, there is a um, big stadium called Hitomebore Stadium, where during the 2020 games, um, Japan will host uh, some of the soccer games. For people in Rifu, the stadium has been the only place for people to gather. It has so far hosted concerts of uh, pop idols, groups like uh, SMAP or Arashi. And it has also hosted, um, in 2002, Rifu hosted uh, the Soccer World, World Cup. Mm -hmm. So it's the symbol of the city. And uh, so, of course, people, organizers uh, and people who manage the, the operations there, they hope that uh, it will help bring attention to the, uh, to the region. But on the other hand, there, there, there are no plans to, to do anything about the infrastructure there. I've heard that there will be shuttle buses. From Sendai. From Sendai that will take people, athletes and spectators to to the stadium and what will change at the stadium will be um, the grass and sprinklers and the monitor <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there, there won't be any major um, there are no major refurbishment plans what do you make of the idea that the olympics is actually just superficial and a bit of a distraction from the real recovery efforts when I talked to uh, people in uh, one of Ishinomaki's uh, recovery complexes, um, they were worried that um, the, the Tokyo, the only area that will uh, get some profits, that will benefit from the Olympics, 
is Tokyo, the politicians and, well, the capital. And people in Ishinomaki and other coastal areas, they they are still struggling and they uh, they don't believe that they have already recovered. They still need help. And the, the Olympics will, of course, the Olympics will uh, bring attention to the region temporarily. And they are worried that they will be forgotten after the Olympics. And that's one uh, one of the concerns. And the other problem is that um, all the projects related to the Olympics uh, may be taking people away from uh, from those areas affected by by the the disasters. Having traveled around the region, what do you think is in store for? places like Ishinomaki. Do you think they're on the road to recovery or is there still a very long way to go? A vast area of Tohoku has been affected by the by the tsunami, by uh, the earthquake and by uh, the nuclear disaster. And all those areas have different problems and are in a different stage of recovery. Ishinomaki is a place, is one of those places that has been uh, struggling with decreasing population and uh, well aging population so if we're talking about the recovery in terms of um, reconstruction of the infra- infrastructure or uh, facilities it's been it's almost done uh, about 99% of uh, recovery complexes has been rebuilt and uh, the we can say the same thing about schools and facilities there. But um, most of the victims have just started to, to build their new uh, lives. In to, They just settled down or are settling down in uh, new areas. So for them, the problems will continue, for sure. Magda, thank you very much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you, Oscar. All the Japan Times is reporting on the 8th anniversary of the Great East Japan Earthquake can be found online at japantimes.co.jp where you can also find all the latest in-depth news, lifestyle, culture and sport from Japan and beyond. Deep Dive was hosted this week by me, Oscar Boyd. Our guests were Ryusei Takahashi and Magda Osumi. If you like Deep Dive, please leave us a review or a rating on whichever podcast service you use. And if you liked it, why not share the episode with someone you think might appreciate it? You can find more episodes on all major podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Join us on Twitter and let us know your thoughts on the episode at Japan Deep Dive. Thank you for listening and see you next time.